Welcome everyone. Hello. This is Henry DeVries with the Marketing with a Book podcast. Thanks for joining us today. This is our book for authors and experts who want to attract high paying clients by marketing with a book and a speech. Someone this week said our target audience is business coaches, strategic consultants, marketing agencies, professionals. It's that whole group of people who are in the business of expertise. So we help people who are in the business of expertise to shine a spotlight on their work and that reflects on what they're doing. So it's all about a book. And we like to say one of our insights is books do not market authors. Authors market books. And we have an author today with a new book out and she'll be telling us about it. She'll tell us about our main message of the book and what she's looking for, for attracting her ideal fit client uh, or patient. Uh, I think it's clients, but we'll get into that in our interview. I wanted to welcome our indie book authors who are with us today. We like to start our podcast with an author roundup, a roll call, if you will. And we're going to start with uh, Dr. Steve and then Mark. Uh, so Dr. Steve, when you're ready. Yeah, thanks, Henry. I am Steve Swively. I'm in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Uh, I'm a leadership neuropsychologist. And the working title of my book is Optimal Team Performance. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Steve. Uh, and then Mark LeBlanc, our chairman. Hello, Mark. All right. Thank you, Henry. My name is Mark LeBlanc. I'm out of Minneapolis and have authored and co-authored a number of books, but the one I'm currently working on is co-authored with David Goldman and Henry, and it's titled Bringing in the Business Without Sounding Like a Salesperson. Thanks, Mark. And where do you hail from, Mark? Minneapolis. There we go. Sometimes, AKA the Twin Cities, welcome. And uh, I think home of the first place Minnesota Twins right now. I so, know. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm from Southern California, home of the first place uh, Angels and Dodgers of Los Angeles. Uh, I'm a baseball nut. You have to forgive that. Uh, I'm not just the head of Indie Books International. I'm one of our authors. Uh, this is a book I wrote with Scott Love and Mark, Rainmaker Confidential. Very proud of this book. Uh, I begin a 16-city speaking tour on this book starting in May in Chicago, and we'll be in Boston and Indianapolis and uh, many spots around the country. If you're interested in that, you can check out our website, rainmakerconfidential.com. Well, with that, I'd like to bring up one of our Indie Books authors, if we could uh, pin Dr. Carrie Johansson. And very interesting, um, her approach and what she's doing. I'll, I'll tee it up and introduce her. Uh, Dr. Carrie, as she likes to be called, is a, a psychologist turned author and speaker. After 20 years in private practice, um, she's bringing her framework for creating a good life uh, and getting people off the couch. And then she's going into the boardroom now to help businesses 
and their employees. And um, certainly we, we need it after these troubling two years we've had. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's Mental Health Month here in May. And I think every month should be Mental Health Month. We could all use more of that. Uh, her most recent book, Self-Help on the Go. It's a compilation of 99 of her favorite tips, tricks, and tactics to create a life you truly enjoy. Dr. Carey, welcome. What, what do you have to share with us today? Thank you, Henry. It's great to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the central premise of my book, which is the concept of psychological flexibility, which sounds like a fancy psychology term, but it's actually in practice pretty easy to learn and to put into play. Well, that's really great. What's, what's an example of psychological flexibility? So if I, psychological flexibility has three parts to it, and I'm going to use a tail of a dog to tell you, to tell you all about it because it's so much more interesting. But the three parts of psychological flexibility are be present, open up, and figure out your next best move. So yesterday, a car ride. This is very exciting for the 14-year-old Jack Russell. Right? She's getting to go for a ride. This is awesome, right? And then she recognizes the vet's office parking lot and it gets a little bit less fun. And we go into the vet and she has to have her teeth cleaned and a little bit, she had a couple of bits and bops that needed to be taken off. She is fine. Spoiler alert, skip to the end. She is good. Um, but we get into the vet's office and she's still kind of optimistic and we hop on the scale and she's doing okay, right? She is in the present moment. She was in the present moment on the car ride. The car ride, fun. She's in the present moment. Hmm, vet's office parking lot. Not sure I like this so much. Go inside. Ooh, snack on the floor. Yum. Ooh, scale. That's fine. That was kind of neutral, right? And then I go to hand her over to the delightful vet tech who takes the leash and I don't follow. And all of a sudden, Katie realizes, so she's done a lovely job being present. She's opened up to the reality that's right in front of her. She's making the best of the vet's office. And then suddenly she realizes, whoa, mom's leaving. This is bad news. I gotta figure out something here to get me to go home with her. I don't wanna go with this lady. I wanna go home with mom. So she starts first by like wiggling and wagging her tail, making, getting my attention. And I sort of wave at her and say goodbye, even though she can't hear me, she's totally deaf, she's 14. But I wave at her, I say goodbye. She needs another next best move, right? Because it's looking grim. It looks like she's gonna end up having to go with this lady. She starts barking. She's very clever. It was a good next best move. The problem is she still ended up going with the lady. So the moral of the story is what? The moral of the story is that when we use this both with dogs and with humans, we do a lot better when we spend our time in the moment that's actually happening. So instead of being a hostage to the past, 
or being stuck in wishful thinking about the future, we need to open up to what's actually happening right in the moment. And then we have to figure out what our next best move is. Or as we used to say, buying trouble from the future. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I, I've had some people work for me who were very good at buying trouble from the future. There's all sorts of troubles that can happen in the future. And yep. They weren't living in the moment. What I liked about editing your book, and I had the privilege of being one of your editors, is that it was so positive and so helpful. And usually when we think of this topic and people in your profession, it's about being broken and damaged and uh, trying to put it back together again and coping and all that. How did you make this transition? You know, I've worked for 20 years in the therapy field. I've been a psychologist, have my own private practice, and I actually specialize in working with anxiety and trauma, which means I get really heavy stories a lot, all day long, right? However, one of the things that is really exciting is that people can actually move even out of terrible traumas and really feel better, create some meaning in their life, and move towards the type of life that they want. So at the end of the day, even though I've seen so much pain and so much trauma, more than anything, my work has been hopeful. And this new cultural narrative that we're all broken and we have to be so focused on whatever the latest outrage is, it doesn't help us feel good. And it also doesn't help us move forward in our world. So for me, I got really passionate about like, no, you have more power than you're giving yourself credit for. Let's have some fun and move forward. And as a therapist, you did very noble work. I mean, therapists do very noble work in our society. And um, it's, it's good to see that a lot of the stigmas of the past are on the way out. Yes. Not all the way gone, but they're on the way out. Um, but um, is this part of a movement, uh, you know, I don't think you're the lone voice in the wilderness on this. Uh, What is the psychological movement that you're a part of? Well, it's interesting. So there's a theory called acceptance and commitment theory. My favorite teacher and instructor of that theory is an Australian guy named Dr. Russ Harris. And his, again, very hopeful material, this notion of you can have even big problems and have a lot more power over them than you're giving yourself credit for. And here are some kind of formulaic steps to get there. Uh, So that acceptance and commitment therapy is kind of the fancy psychology end of things. On a more layperson end of of the world, there are authors like, like Mark Manson, who writes all about this notion of, again, you have more control. You can be more in creator mode. You can choose how you would like your life to go. And so I'm really attracted to those sorts of authors and those, those voices in the world. So how do you accept reality when, you know, that day is crummy? Now, we don't want to say it's crummy. Uh, producer Suzanne and I had a conversation uh, recently where, how are you feeling? Great. How are you feeling? Great. And we said, we're both telling the future in advance because great is how we want to feel. It wasn't exactly great in the moment. Um, So how do you help people with that? Well, I think a big piece is that if we actually slow down and take a look at our worlds, 
we're almost 100% of the time simultaneously getting positive, negative, and neutral input. So what happens when we have had a lousy, like a crummy day or a lousy day, it might actually be lousy, but my guess is that there's also bits of the day that were funny or bits of the day that were enjoyable or bits of the day that were just neutral. And if you imagine it almost like you are sitting in the audience and you're watching a movie, if you imagine that the folks who are in charge of the lighting have spotlighted all of the negative and everything else on the stage is in darkness, really all you can see is the negative. And our brains actually do that super efficiently. So we will spotlight, highlight, and be very focused in and dialed in on what's negative, and we will then get more details about it. Except for what's often more helpful is to kind of sit back and imagine bringing up the house lights so that then that negative piece is in context with the rest of what's happening. And sometimes you'll have a stage full of crummy stuff, right? Like you'll have a lot of negatives on the stage. Most of the time, we actually have a stage that's a mixture of things that we really enjoy, things that are going well, things that scare us, things that are inconveniencing. There's a mixture most of the time, even when we don't have, um, even, even when we haven't been paying attention to it is probably a good way to put it. So that brings up the question, um, we're not therapists, we're not trained, but if we see someone who we know and we care about or someone who works for us, um, I didn't mean to imply we don't care about people who work for us, but I meant <laughs> it's a professional relationship and they're having a lousy go of it. What do you suggest we can do to help them? Well, so one of the things is to, is to start with what not to do. Okay. So one of the pressures that we now have is we see somebody having a rough go of it and we tell them to think positive and we tell them to just not focus on that, you know, just stop focusing on the negative. If you just think positive, it will be fine. And we demand that people start doing affirmations and you know, things of this nature. Again, it's a lot more effective to take a look at the mixture of what's going on. And so to acknowledge man, you're having a lousy go of it. And I really appreciate you working here, or you did a great job on X, or I really admire how you do Y. So you bring in and start modeling for them, bringing in the mixture, and then also really asking and offering to help them. So that question of, you don't need to be a therapist to be effective at helping people, that notion of just literally saying out loud, you've been having a really rough go of it. I trust that you can handle it, but is there anything I can do to help? I'd be happy to. I feel you have a lot of potential in the world of managers and supervisors. These are people who were good at the technical aspects and they decided let's make you in charge of other people. <laughs> and what they tell me is, I was not trained in management supervision therapy is a word that they also use to me. And I have to face all these things. So um, I know I was blessed during my corporate career when I had some issues, 
that um, senior management came in and hired a, um, I believe they were called organizational psychologists, uh -huh. uh, but gave me some intense training and tools and what to do uh, to help. Are there tools and, because your book says tactics, tools, tips. Um, yep. Are there some that come to mind that are going to be helpful to people who are managing and supervising others? Absolutely. And one of the biggest is that concept of psychological flexibility. So a lot of what I find managers are doing or employees are doing, and they're actually wishing that their managers were doing differently, is you, you end up stuck in how you want someone to be. And you're spending a lot of time and energy in outrage about how someone isn't what you want them to be, right? How many times have you thought to yourself, like, gosh, I just, if they would just do it my way, or if they would just do it differently, normally it's my way, right? Yeah. And not their way, then we would be fine. Except for that's actually psychological rigidity in action. My way is correct their way is wrong, you have an inherent split. And so the concept of psychological flexibility is like slowing down and doing an assessment. What's working? And again, that assessment is looking at that mixture again. So what's working here? Because almost nobody is bad 100% of the time, right? What isn't working here? How am I contributing to that? So that each person can own their own piece of it. And then what's our next best move? What are our options? So then you're looking at an, a menu of options instead of the only right answer being doing it my way. You, you just reminded me of something that uh, they teach at the Harvard Business School called QKS. Ooh. And it's talking, surveying, doing whatever with your people and asking him the three questions. What am I doing that you would like me to quit doing? Uh-huh. Uh, what am I doing that you would like me to keep doing? Keep doing. And what would you like me to do, uh, start doing? Oh, I was guessing it was going to be stop. I love the yeah. start. Quit, keep, start. Okay. And then they said the real power is sharing the results with everyone. Yes. Oh, 50% of you wanted me to quit doing this. And the other 50% want me to keep doing it. So I'm going to have to weigh those two things. Mm -hmm. Oh, but many people wanted me to start doing this. So I'm going to start doing that too. And it was the power of sharing it all. So I'm coming to the topic of communication. Absolutely. Importance of communication. And what advice do you give people in that area? Well, a huge piece for communication is slowing down enough to listen to what's actually being said and paying attention to that, to paying attention to what's really on the table. It's interesting. I actually just left a session. I was working earlier today in my therapy practice and I was doing some family work and taking a look at what was being said verbally and what was being said non-verbally were not actually matching up. And both people were confused because one message was getting verbally said, but then there's a big sort of harumpy kind of thing. So it's like, oh yeah, I'm fine. Well, you don't look very fine, right? And so 
So taking a look at the whole of what's actually going on. So what's really happening. So being present to what is actually going on and doing an assessment about it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good or bad. Even if someone is disgruntled, that, is, that, that can be just factual information. It doesn't have to mean that you have to respond to it. Right? And so if we can slow down and assess what's really going on in front of me, and then you can label it and invite the other person to label it, then you have, again, a lot more power in that conversation. So things like, it sounds like what you're saying is, what I hear is, so you're reflecting back and you're checking what's really happening instead of, I've decided what you're saying is, right? And we're kind of talking to each other a lot like that. I think the media is really encouraging that outrage. If you listen to the news, whichever side you use, your favorite side, both sides are delivering news in these tones of outrage and this, this, there's a lot of name calling and there's a bunch of put downs and that's never gonna join people together. And so in communication, if you can be the person who slows down and really takes a look at what's actually being communicated here, then you have so many more options to really hear each other, understand, get on the same page. One of our authors, wrote a wonderful book and, and he did not have a, a neuroscience or psychology background, yeah. but it was all about the amygdala, uh, the threat switch in our brain, uh, fight, flight, freeze, yeah. um, and how much we get triggered by other people. Yeah. And he taught that you have a choice um, yes. You can't control the other person, but you have control over yourself. What, what is your view about you control yourself and decisions you need to make? Well, you have to understand which part of your brain you're coming from. So the human part of our brain is this lovely prefrontal cortex. This is the rational and reasoning center of our brains. This is where linguistics are located. Dr. Steve I'm aware I'm oversimplifying this grossly. I'm sure you can pitch in later. Um, but this is, this is our, our human brain, right? Rational and reason centers, language, metacognition, that's our ability to think about our thinking. That's all up here. It's not necessarily very emotional. That's kind of more our mammal brain in the back. Our mammal brain in the back is excitable, emotional, attachment-based, reward-seeking, punishment-avoiding. That's in here. And then in our very back, that's where that amygdala is. Back is not quite the right description, but we'll just go with it for now. That's where our inner alligator lives. And our inner alligator's really only mission is to keep us safe in a threatening world. So if you look at, you know, if you've ever spent any time watching alligators, they're mostly still. They're either still on land or still in water, unless they're fighting, right? Or they're eating, which looks surprisingly like fighting if you've ever watched an alligator eat. So you want to keep the alligator at bay because alligators are not verbal. They do not communicate. They are non-emotive. Our inner mammal is very emotive right? Like the number of emotions I watched Katie go through yesterday at the vet's office 
from like, ooh, fun, we're having a, you know, we're, we're having a car ride down to like, oh, no, she's leaving, right? There is a ton of emotion there. Um, that emotive brain, you want to make sure that that piece of your brain, those emotions feel contained and safe. And then your prefrontal cortex is where you're going to be thinking through your choices. So you actually want all three online most of the time, but you want the alligator just hanging out, right? It's done an assessment. Everybody's okay. There is no grave threat. The midbrain, you want to have like, oh, I'm nervous about something coming up, but you still want, you don't want to be so lost in those nerves that you've lost your ability to think and choose. So when you're offline, out of this brain, and you're in your emotive brain, you tend to be flooded with emotion. When you're in your threat brain, you tend to be reacting quickly and snapping at people. So it's kind of, it's actually really fun to teach and to work with managers on teaching when, like, when are their clients, when are you actually dealing with an alligator instead of a human? And how do you coax them back into being a human, even if there's a big problem on the board? Does that I've help met, answer the question? Oh, yes, yes. And I've met some alligators, literal alligators in my life. And yeah, I don't want to get near them again. They're not um, very fun. No. And, uh, you know, we're a lot of parents of fur babies here. So we could definitely relate to your um, your uh, Jack Russell Terrier story. On yeah. this. Um, overall, I wanted to come back to the big picture. Um, because in your work, what I get from it is that you emphasize people are not broken. Why yes. do you say people are not broken? Because for the most part, we have a, we have a tremendous more, uh, so that's grammatically incorrect. We have much more of an opportunity to create the type of life we want. And if you are spending all of your time and energy thinking about what's wrong with you, how you messed up, how you're broken, how you're not good enough, then that builds that thought and that energy in your world and you become truly progressively less able to feel like you have choices. And so my work is all about helping people move towards the choices that they do have. And that looks a lot like, like it's okay to say that you have strengths and weaknesses. It's okay to acknowledge that there's bits of your life that aren't going well, but that doesn't define you and make you a terrible person. And so moving out of that just negative self-view is so exciting to watch somebody move out of that and move into this notion of like, I'm not perfect, but I could do X, Y, or Z. That's really the most gratifying part of my work, I think. So I understand you have a gift to offer today. What, what is the gift that you're offering? I do. So today is the day that my book launches, Self-Help on the Go, and it is currently on sale for the next seven days uh, for 99 cents for the Kindle e-version. We also, of course, have a soft cover version, and I would uh, be very happy to offer that Kindle version to everyone. And if you have uh, questions or anything directly for me, I'm also always happy to have you know, a 10, 15 minute conversation about what, you know, what direction can I send you? How, how can I be helpful? All of that good stuff. That's very generous. Um, and this is something we like to encourage the people in the family and also our listeners. 99 cents. 
um, if you could buy the book and then give a honest review, you don't have to give it five stars. If you say it's the greatest thing, uh, you know, since the Bible, you know, you don't have to give that kind of review. It's not uh, comparative. Honest. Yeah, right. We're not competing here. Um, <laughs> um, so it's the verified purchase review that matters to the Amazon.com algorithm. Yes. So we really want that. One of the things for authors who are listening to this is it's very important to how many people you can get to give you a review of your book. You want to shoot for 24 in the first 90 days. Okay. And then yep. over the course of the year, 100, mm -hmm. because one of the people, I'm sorry, one of the ways people evaluate authors and books is how many people have reviewed this book. Yep. And it's not quite like Yelp, where you want to only go to the four-star restaurant and make sure nobody said something bad. It's, it's yeah, you want the book to be in the three and a half to four to five range, sure. But it's more important how many people have endorsed it. I had an example of one of our authors I was working with, and I said, well, what's a similar book? Or we looked at it, and then we looked at Amazon, and a similar topic and 27,000 people had given it a positive review. Oh my gosh. And I said, you need to figure out what's going on here. And we found out that um, Julia Roberts made a movie about the book. <laughs> well, that would be very helpful. That would be, yeah. So in addition <laughs> I love to Julia uh, Roberts. Uh, get an option, um, it, it really sent that book up the bestseller lists and all those things. So you can also win the lottery. I've heard that happens, the Powerball lottery, <laughs> but it's not a good retirement strategy. So we, we don't want to count on uh, a famous Hollywood star making a movie about our book. Um, even though some, some nonfiction books have been the basis for films, I don't want to rule it out, but just some of this ongoing work. So um, we want to encourage Dr. Carey to continue sending copies of the book out to people. Um, yep. Don't wait for them to discover the book, put it in their hands. People who can make a difference booking you as a speaker or covering it or writing about you. Um, also, we encourage you to do showcases like you're doing today where you talk about the book. We like to think that more people will be impacted by you talking about the book than actually reading the book. Well, so and, <laughs> and it's, a, it's might, a multiple. This might seem silly, but the whole reason I wrote the book is that this is what my clients were asking for. They were tired of reading a 300 page one topic, uh, you know, heavy scenario. And um my daughter just walked in in a prom dress. Mm. Oh my gosh, you look lovely. I'm in the middle of something, so I really can't talk, but have fun. <laughs> so sorry. To well, that was psychologically flexible of you. I hope that was psychologically flexible of our audience too. Yeah. Thank you guys. I didn't say, get out of here. She's. I was trying hard just to focus and the next thing I know I have this like sparkles and all sorts of taffeta in the you know right in front of me it was great 
Um, she has a banquet she's going to, and I guess the theme is masquerade. So she and her friends are all uh, wearing their prom dresses, which is kind of fun. Okay. Um, but what I was saying was that my clients were tired of reading a whole book. They, and in fact, they weren't reading a whole book. What they were doing was they were going and getting a book that was on the topic that they wanted help with. And then they were getting frustrated in the first 15 pages and they certainly didn't read the other 285 pages. What they asked for is like, well, you just told me to try this. And I went and tried it And like, what's my homework this week? And I'll go try that this week. And they were, they were essentially saying, tell me to try this, not that. That would be a lot more helpful. So the entire goal of my book, Henry, is number one, to reach more people at a time. Individual therapy is amazing. And it's me sitting across the couch from one other person, right? Like it's really gonna be helpful to reach more people. But number two is this whole book, don't read the whole thing. If you have anxiety, just read the chapter on anxiety. If you wanna improve your relationship, just do that chapter. Just flip to a page and decide if it works for you. So it's more, hopefully the book itself is more flexible and is designed, certainly designed to be more flexibly used. Your, your writing is grounded in research and theory, but yes. it doesn't read that way. No. It definitely <laughs> reads as uh, pragmatic, friendly advice, advice from a friend who just happens to be knowledgeable in this area. So yeah. uh, I applaud you for that. You, you've succeeded in that. Um, I was looking to see if... Uh, we had any questions come up in the chat, uh, anything you'd want to ask. Uh, so now would be a good time to do it. Um, Taking a peek. Yeah, I was just looking for, I was looking for that, giving people a chance is, um, did you have an aha moment, an epiphany moment where it was, I need to leverage what I'm doing. I, help, I need to help more people doing this. Um, I need to find a way. Did, was someone a mentor to you on this? Uh, I'm curious uh, if that happened. So my very first aha moment was a very long time ago when I was 14. And it was in a dusty riding arena. And I was doing, I was a sidewalker for therapeutic horseback riding. So you have one person in the front of the horse, one person on the left side, and one person on the right side. And we had a kiddo who had cerebral palsy, who was completely nonverbal, uh, but he could communicate a little bit. And one of the ways that he could communicate was that he could communicate how he was feeling. And horseback riding was very clearly his very favorite thing. And he lit up when he would be on the horse. But this one particular day, he had a seizure on the horse. And this is really bad news on all sorts of levels. Number one, the kid's having a seizure. That's a big problem. Number two, we have to keep them from falling off the horse. Number three, we have to keep the horse calm enough, right? Like we don't need the horse's inner alligator to get activated here. Everybody worked together, including the horse. Kiddo got to safety. And what we found out was that he hadn't gotten his meds that morning for his anti-seizure his anti meds. And I just remember that sensation of he was so helpless and I felt so helpless trying to help him. And there was something in that moment that just for me activated this inner desire to help other people, to feel good, 
to live as, as, as positive and as enjoyable of a life as they can live. And that started me on this whole process of becoming a psychologist. And more recently in my work, uh, working with Dr. Russ Harris, I really resonated because I was taking a look at my clients and seeing who changes and who doesn't. And it was really interesting because the folks with the best mindset, the folks who had a sense of agency in their world, no matter what the trauma history, I mean, it could like make your skin crawl, bad trauma history. But if they had this sensation that they had some agency, they were the ones who would get better. And so getting hooked up with Dr. Harris and hearing his theory, it just put everything into, really put everything into place for me in terms of how to help folks have more agency, have more choices, and to not feel that helpless feeling. Dr. Carey, this next question is gonna be a dusty road. I'm gonna go down a dusty road in the <laughs> no, questions at the end, so stay road. with me. So, um, and, and it has to do with the fur babies and the power of animals and therapy. And um, my older cousin, Dick, Dick, retired Dick, down in a motor home in Florida, got a rescue dog. Okay. So he feel better. And Dick's a volunteering type. So he, he liked to go to uh, senior citizen homes and you know, bring the dog and maybe that would cheer people up. And he goes, the dog was this amazing natural that just like knew everything to do with, <laughs> with all this. And then... Um, Dick said, that was an impressive dog. And then um, they had a, what do you want to call it? Beginner dog show kind of training and things like okay. that. So he thought he'd take the dog to it. And the dog knew everything to do. And it, um, you know, ran through the courses and did that and walked. And <laughs> this is a clever dog. First prize and I don't know. And then, so he looked into it and uh, they have chips in them and found out that this dog was a um, Westminster dog show oh. national champion. Oh my gosh. But was unable to breed oh. and was sent to a rescue shelter. And- um, Poor baby. And uh, it just, so the next part reminded, reminded me when um, uh, Barack Obama became president of the United States and he got a dog for his daughters in the White House. And he said, because if you want a friend in Washington, you better buy a dog. <laughs> so it's your only chance. This is all coming to, do you have anything to say about the benefits psychologically of having a pet, uh, having a dog in your life? Uh, oh my gosh. If you have anything to say. So my, my personal opinion is bolstered by research. So this is the best, you know, this is the best, Henry, when whatever I think actually is backed up by the, by the researchers is genius. Um, Unlike you, animals, just pulls things from air. You, you've got <laughs> research behind you. Well, you always, you, you don't want to just give your opinion, right? Like if you've just given your opinion, any old Yahoo can do that, right? I, I went to school for way too long to just give an opinion. So Having animals in your life is literally a physical health boost. It lowers your blood pressure. It increases mental health. It decreases stress. 
there are myriad proven benefits to having an animal in your life. And that's marvelous. I didn't really intend for us to talk about animals this whole time, but they're so great. This is a, this is a fun conversation. Animals are great. Um, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, sharing. And uh, I know somebody recently got two little animals and uh, uh, I, I, I believe there's helping. one that's being featured right now. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're a terrier or a terrorist. I don't know. It depends on the day, but uh, they're they're loved. That's for sure, and bring love. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we thank you for your advice. We encourage people to look into your book. Uh, what's the name of your book again, Doctor Carey? Self Help on the Go, and you can Something find it. At we Amazon. as authors have to learn. We have to say our book title over and over again yes. so people remember. Um, and the nifty sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> the nifty thing is my website is now selfhelponthego.com and uh, it makes it easy. So thank you so much. And thanks to everybody for joining us today. We'll see you on another episode of the Marketing with a Book podcast. <laughs>